On this episode of the ASC podcast with John Gailey, we visit the Ohio Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's annual meeting in Columbus, Ohio, interview some of the the speakers and exhibitors and speak with the association leadership about the conference and the value of the state association. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 199 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for September 20th, 2023. Recording from our temporary studio in Columbus, Ohio, during the annual meeting of the Ohio Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers. This is Tony Lyons, guest co-host for this episode and a financial specialist with Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape, and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of the re- of recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over, over 10 books on the ASC industry and is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. How are you doing, Tony? <laughs> this, is, this is kind of funny because uh, Tony, uh, for those of you that don't know Tony, Tony and I have been friends for 33 years, and he is uh, solely responsible for me being in the ASC industry. So here I am. He's introducing me, and yet this gentleman used to run one of the major hospitals in Buffalo, New York, and really uh, was a, a mentor for me when I was getting into the healthcare industry. So I, I could have said many of the same things that you said about me here, but I forced you yeah. uh, to do well, this. You did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, w- I was thinking of, uh, of that 30 years, and I thought, well, gee, uh, you know, yeah. we've often talked about how you got started in this industry <laughs> yeah. by working on an ASC that I went, the hospital where I was a CFO. Yeah. We wanted to get, we needed a feasibility study. And so I went to my old accounting firm, Peter yeah. Howard, now KPMG, 
and they sent John Cayley. <laughs> and so you're in the rest is history. Yeah. So. <laughs> Thanks for so much for joining. You, uh, uh, Sue was not able to make it here to the Ohio State Association, so I uh, coerced you to uh, get in front of a microphone. You have no problem in public speaking, and uh, and Tony's been on a couple of our podcasts, you know, speaking about different things. So uh, I thought this would be kind of an interesting uh, thing to talk about. So we, uh, I actually did, didn't speak this year at the Ohio Association, which is pretty normal. We uh, one year, one off. One year on, one year off. Uh, and but we did have a booth here. We got to meet with a lot of our our uh, our long-term listeners on the podcast and of course you and I manned the booth for you know two solid days here and got to meet uh, you know other other uh, you know atten- all the other attendees here it's been a good conference I've enjoyed the, the time I've had right yeah of course I'm originally from Ohio right so I felt a kinship here yeah um, I didn't think I'd see any of my old colleagues but uh, you know there was yeah. kind of hope anyway it, uh, it was a very good conference I believe and uh, well attended uh, and as always with the state associations we go to, uh, many people are familiar with John with the podcast. Yeah, and, and Tony does a lot of our uh, our state visits just because you're. Uh, uh, first of all, you you have time sometimes. Well, yeah. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> Tony's got one of those uh, positions within our company where, uh, unlike our regulatory specialist, uh, you know, in finance, you know, we have these cycles we go through, and and obviously that's uh, that's the challenge here, but. Uh, I appreciate your uh, taking the time to come here, and of course your your proximity to uh, uh, you actually have an apartment, which I understand you're giving up in Ohio. So. Yeah, in Cleveland. Right? Yeah. Yep. So it was great to be here. The um, you know we have a couple clients in Ohio. It was great to uh, talk to them about what's going on, and and we have a bunch of interviews that I did while I was here. Um, so I, you know this is what we do every year when we're we're speaking about you know the association and the you know the different speakers during the conference. So. And Tony, you weren't able to go to the uh, social event afterwards, but that's always a highlight of the conference. Uh, you had uh, other commitments yesterday, so I, uh, I, uh, I took the bullet and uh, you know <laughs> went out and uh, to the to the bar that they uh, they use here. You know, uh, it, it was tough. What can I say? But uh, did get to meet with uh, you know a lot of the other vendors. I think that's one of the things I, I just wanted to point out too. So for our listeners who are vendors here, uh, this is a good vendor experience generally. Very good. Um, we we got to meet with a lot of them. There's plenty of time not only to meet with the um, the attendees, but also the other vendors. So, you know, if you are a vendor listening to this, uh, you know, definitely consider, you know, coming to, to Ohio because there definitely is uh, a lot of opportunity to speak to uh, the attendees as well as to meet with other vendors and perhaps develop some other relationships that are important. Yeah, I think um, the, the vendor interaction is always very good at, at the state conferences and mm-hmm. very good here. I think also the attendees, um, many of them do take advantage to talk to the uh, yeah. to the vendors, and we should take more advantage of that because there's yeah. a, a wealth of knowledge by speaking with them. You know, we think, well, we're talking to the vendors, we have to, you know, get their services, but yeah. uh, you know, they're there to talk and, and share knowledge, and there's a, a there's an excellent networking that occurs. Absolutely, not only between vendor and vendor, but uh, vendors and uh, you know, just we in the vendors. ASC industry. Yeah. Okay, with that, let's uh, start doing our interviews. (music) 
As a leader in the ambulatory surgery industry, you already know that the ASC podcast with John Gailey is your ultimate free resource for staying updated with the latest news and information while ensuring your organization maintains regulatory and accreditation compliance. But did you know that we have two membership programs on our partner website, ASC Central, that can take your organization to the next level? For just $25 a month, our patron program will unlock a host of amazing benefits. Enjoy regular Zoom meetings with our hosts and special guests, access to recorded conferences like our credentialing seminar, conditions for coverage conference, medical director conference, and our most recent two-day multi-state conference. The patron program also offers a comprehensive database of policies, forms, drills, example minutes, and other invaluable resources to optimize your center's operations. For those centers that want even more, our new ASC Central Premium Access Plan offers a variety of online services to its members. The benefits include access to a wide range of services, including all of the benefits of the patron program, unlimited access to our popular boot camps, the ASC industry's most comprehensive training for ASC leadership. Members can attend any number of the ASC Administrator Boot Camps and ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camps and can listen to the recordings throughout their membership. It also includes unlimited access to the industry's most comprehensive infection control training designed for infection control coordinators and those that wish to take the Certified Ambulatory Surgery Center Infection Preventionist exam. And the program also includes up to five hours of private consultations by Zoom. For more information about these two programs, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com or click on the links in the show notes. I started out my interviews by talking to Heidi Moss. Heidi is the executive director for the Ohio State Association, and we had an opportunity to speak about the conference and about the benefits of membership in the Ohio State Association. Let's listen. So we're here at the Ohio Association meeting in is it September, Heidi? It's September. <laughs> September. Um, More and than halfway through September. That's right. And you have been a busy it. person, I'll tell you, right now, I, working with everything yes, else. So yes. It's great to be here. Heidi Moss is the executive, what's your director, official title? Director, executive director of the Ohio Association, Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers. Such a mouthful, as most of us <laughs> know in the industry. It's a lot to say. Well, I've been coming here. I can't I can't even remember, but it's well over five years, and it's always a pleasure to, oh, to least, be here. Yeah. And uh, it's always a great conference. I'm not speaking this year. I assume I'll probably be back next year. You usually get a year between uh, times. I like to but, keep it fresh. And, and, and you should. I, I think that's important, especially uh, – you know, there's a lot of states, unfortunately, that don't have the, the resources you do. So they, you know, they're lucky that they get any speakers. We, we, are, we are very lucky. We, we do <clears throat> manage to get a significant amount of support yeah. from our service partners in the industry. And it, it does give us some room to do some things. And this conference has been great. I hear that the member, the attendance is up too, again, right back yeah, to John, pre-COVID. We're super excited. We had 130 attendees, a couple walk-ins on top of that, which is the highest we've been post-COVID. Okay. Um, I, you know, and I think before COVID, we maybe had a couple years where we hit 150 with just yeah. attendees, not counting exhibitors. That doesn't count any speakers in the mix. So really excited to see that number pop yeah. up. And um, 
We had great sponsor support, great exhibitor support. We sold out of our exhibit hall six weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a really exciting year in terms of the conference and actually just in terms of general membership as well. But we can talk right. more about the conference first if you want to. Yeah, please do. And, and one thing I'll point out too about the exhibitors, it's been a great exhibitor experience. Uh, I have been talking to a number of people who um, uh, have actually come to the conferences that they would have been exhibitors, but unfortunately they um, they didn't sign up in time. So for those of you out there that are listening, you know, get get your name in right away. Uh, join the association, even as an exhibitor. We'll talk about membership for the uh, sure. the, the ASC shortly too. But uh, but as exhibitors, this is an important conference. Ohio is a big state. How many surgery centers do we have in the state of Ohio? Uh, two hundred and six, over two hundred and sixty. Yeah, I'm not sure two sixty four, sixty eight, but over two hundred. Which, which makes you huge. Like New York only has 160. I think even Illinois is about 100. And, I think about the same number, 160. So I think people forget Ohio geographically may not be the biggest state, but we've yeah. got a significant amount of mid to large size cities. And right. so that, that leads to a lot of dense population and that population has medical needs. And, and, and the state is very supportive of the ambulatory surgery concept. Absolutely. Too, yes. Which is not so much the case in some of these other smaller, uh, bigger states with smaller number of ASCs. So, uh, so speaking from a, a vendor standpoint, from uh, exhibitors here, this is a great experience. All the exhibitors we spent, you probably saw that, you know, as exhibitors, we spent a lot of time talking to each other, a lot of business being done behind the scenes between the exhibitors, but tell us about the, uh, uh, the, the conference, you know, what sure. it took to put it all together and uh, what you're hoping for for next year. Yeah, absolutely. I, before we get into that, I will comment on one thing. I actually, John, have had a couple different vendors come up to me that are first time vendors mm -hmm. at this show and say, even my fellow vendor audience is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So that that is like an important part of the event on top yeah. of what you get with your expected networking. Absolutely. We found that too, is that, you know, we're doing business, you know, B2B too, you know, sure. as much as working with the other uh, organizations. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you ask about what goes into this conference. It's, it's pretty much a year round planning experience mm -hmm. after this event. We'll have what everyone loves to call the post-mortem yeah. <laughs> meeting. And we'll talk about what worked what worked fantastically, what could have worked better. Right. Make some notes for next year. We're just on the verge of signing a contract for next year's event, but we do like to stick around the second and third week of September if we can. Okay. Never a Monday. Nobody likes a Monday right. meeting. Right. Um, so we ho are hoping to have an announcement about that in the very near future. And oh. John made this a comment and it is I will if you are out there and if you are a service provider and you're interested in coming do start looking for those announcements on our website at www.oaasc.net around June okay because you know this year they went fast yeah. it doesn't always happen that way but this year they went fast mm. and he also made the point as he knows well because he supports us not only at the event as an exhibitor and sometimes a speaker but also as a member mm -hmm. this year he generously with his company supplied our lanyards so that was very exciting and much appreciated as well but and they look um, really good you can if <laughs> yeah thank you you can either renew or join at the beginning of the year and go ahead and pre-purchase your yeah. table which does save you a hundred dollars versus exhibiting as a non-member when the time comes. So yeah. just, just something to think about as you're planning for your 2024 
uh, exhibit season, something to keep an eye out on. Well, and, and also from a membership standpoint, as a vendor right. member, um, you get all this information right away. Like, right, uh, you know what your customers yeah. are going through, you know what they need, you know what's yeah. going on in their in their business lives, and that can be really helpful information for you as you're right. out and about building those relationships. So, yeah, we um, will probably start thinking about what kinds of keynote we want to have mm-hmm. next year what kind of format we want to look out, how many breakouts. We'll probably start talking about that in November. Um, Use October to kind of clean things up, settle the finances on this year's meeting, and then dive right back in for next year. So it is quite the planning process. We do utilize our education committee and our board um, very liberally i'm constantly picking their brains and asking for opinions and asking yeah. for help because they are the experts no they know what they need and yeah. so ask that you know ask them tell you got them. a great board i do i have yeah. a, i have such a supportive incredible yeah. board and most of them most of my education committee also serves on the board mm-hmm. i have a couple extra folks there that hang on, but it's also, it's a great way to foster new board members as well. So uh, we do lean on them a lot for planning and, you know, we just always want to put together the best event that gets our folks in Ohio, the best information Mm -hmm. they possibly can. We try to offer them that six hours of infection prevention every year that the folks need and the centers need. And then uh, above and beyond that, we vary it up with both clinical and business Uh, related topics. And then, you know, this year we had a little bit more of just like a non-industry related, but inspirational, motivational Mm -hmm. keynote, because it's been kind of heavy the last couple of years, you know, everybody's trying to make things quote unquote normal again. I don't know that we even know what normal is anymore. And And instead of offering one of those problem solving, this is what you do with this situation post COVID keynotes, we thought let's bring in something a little happier, a little yeah. lighter, like set the last day of the conference off right, everyone in a positive mood. And I think it went off very well. I think he was very well received. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just hoping everyone has a great day today. I, I'm sure they will. And uh, we're, we're here until three. Uh, we so are. we'll be doing a couple more interviews as we go through. We Hopefully are indeed. Will... Yes. Um, so uh, let's talk about membership. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, now, of course, I attend a lot of state association meetings. This is really one of the best out there. And and but more importantly, you're one of the most active associations. Um, now, part of it is because of the size of the state and the number of surgery centers. Sure. But you know, obviously, it takes a strong leadership in the organization, strong executive director. So, congratulations for the great work you do. But talk about you know what the value is of membership in Ohio's association. I think that. The best thing you get out of a membership of OAASC is probably something that doesn't even sound like it's that big of a deal, but it's building relationships with your peers. And sometimes that happens through your association staff. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of times someone will contact me and obviously I'm not a nurse. I'm Mm -hmm. not a billing specialist. I know how to run the association successfully. Uh, but I know who to ask and right. then I can put an ask out to the members that I think might be able to help such and such a person. We put that question out. We get those people connected. That helps me learn mm-hmm. then in my knowledge that I know who specializes in what area of the ASC industry. And we just help people 
talk to their peers in like a, a non competitive kind yeah, of way. Yeah. They don't have to worry about competitors. And I think that's so much more valuable mm-hmm. than people realize. And we just want to foster that environment where mm-hmm. you need something. We're going to help you. We're going to go to your peers. We're going to figure out what folks are doing. Yeah. Um, there are some great resources that we've built. Then also within the um, service provider field, mm-hmm. like a John, um, that you know, if we get really trapped on something, hey, can you help me out? I have yeah. a person. I need to help them. So it's just this amazing set of resources. And it's, it's such an intangible. Sometimes it's hard to sell people on that when you say it. Yeah. But, yeah. but when you need something and you don't know where to go or who to ask yeah. and you can call your association all of a sudden, like you get it. Yeah. You're like, Oh, Hey, this is, this is invaluable. I could have never figured this out or it would have taken me weeks yeah. to figure out this solution on my own. If I didn't have someone to call and ask. And we also offer, um, sometimes it's, it's not terribly complex. And we do have a members only Q and a mm-hmm. where a person can post a question and I can't put that up in the members only section. And I, send something out to the members and say, your peers need to hear from you. Here's this issue. If you know, click here to read in more detail about the issue. But if you have information that you can help someone with, please feel free to provide a response and, you know, consider yourself able to do the same Hmm. likewise when you stumble on to a question. So we just really try to, help encourage that kind of relationship building within the industry and just make sure everybody has the access to the information they need to be as successful as they can with their centers. And that just doesn't mean like running a center that's crazy profitable. Obviously everyone Mm -hmm. wants that, but you know, you're successful with your surveys, you're meeting all the requirements. And that's what, you know, our goal is is to give our members a path to doing that as painlessly Mm -hmm. as possible. Well, and and uh, you can't underestimate the value of the context that people make during these conferences. Yes. A lot of conversations going on, you know, between different centers. And and your point about having those resources too, like we give away so much free stuff. Yeah, you know, free. I'm not talking about the you know, the gifts at the table. Right. You know, just advice the and knowledge. things like that. Because we know when you know, like a company like ours, we know when when it really gets tough, you're going to hire us. But in the meantime, I'm going to give you whatever free advice I can give you through the association, through the conferences, whatever. Exactly. To get you to that and point. People remember that. If you, if you have a small question and, you know, John was able to help me with that. So now we have this big need. I trust that we can hire him to do this because right. he's been so helpful in the past with helping me get from point yeah. A to point B. And that makes all the difference in the world because I think everyone is spread so thin. I think the the biggest piece of feedback we get anymore, even though our attendance took a significant jump this year from last year is I just don't have, I'd have brought more people to the whole conference, but then I'd have no one to staff the center. So the most, anything we can do to help folks get their jobs done in the most efficient way. that's really important these days. Well, and and you and I have been talking about like that right now there's a movement among some of the the vendors out there, including the ASC podcast that we're trying to find ways to supplement the state association, the multi-state conference, which we're hoping you're going to join us, you know, coming up. But those are things that you're not alone, you know, for those that are listening that are in other states, you know, the state associations are just challenged with being able to, 
to bring more than one person from the center to the conference, which we used to rely on, and we just literally cannot always Absolutely. afford to do that. Yes. So we got to offer some alternatives to that uh, if we want to remain, you know, still uh, still providing the services that we did yes. pre-pandemic when that happened. Yes. I'm hoping this is a temporary situation, but quite frankly, it does not look like it is. It's going to be a, pro- a while before we solve our staffing problem. Yeah, it really does <clears throat> seem like we're going to be dealing with this for a bit yet. Yeah, yeah. So I almost think, honestly, John, maybe until the next generation comes into the new workforce, you know, the workforce and maybe has a different mindset. But those folks who kind of went through the shutdown, I think their idea of what a work week is has changed. So we're all doing the best that we can to work with the resources we have. Right. And it's going to be a challenge for a while. And we spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about, you know, succession planning and things Mm -hmm. like that. So. Um, you know, I think the association can be very valuable in helping out. Talk also about, you know, one of the biggest uh, values that you have, we use it extensively with our Ohio, Ohio centers, is your benchmarking. Yeah, absolutely. We have a great benchmarking system set up. I think John can probably attest that it's pretty simple to use. It is, yeah. Um, and we do have the three main operation, demographic, and financial uh, sections that you go in and fill out on a quarterly basis. Mm-hmm. We have, let's see, our next window window opens October 1st and we'll be open through November 15th for data entry for our members. As I said, it's absolutely free. And then they can run all the reports that they mm-hmm. need to present at their board meetings to their ownership, what have to you. Re- regulatory, regulatory agencies. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, it's just something that we are thrilled to be able to provide to our members yeah. because it really does focus in on what the other centers are doing in the state of Ohio. Right. Because and, it is Ohio based. You know, so for those that are, are listening that are not aware of this, is that the Ohio reporting um, uh, uh, benchmarking fully meets the requirements of any of the regulatory, both the state, mm-hmm. your accreditation organization, and CMS. So, uh, and, and uh, another point that I'd make is that. We, you and I both know not everybody's able to get the report, you know, get their data in every quarter. Right. That's okay. As I'm a surveyor. That's okay. You know, the, the regulation doesn't require ongoing benchmarking. Well, it requires ongoing, but it doesn't require quarterly benchmarking. Like continual. Yeah. Now, that being said, do it quarterly. But sure. if you miss a quarter, don't freak out and think that, <clears throat> you know, you're suddenly going to have a problem with the regulators. We, right. we don't really care about that. We just want to know you're doing it. Yeah. And it is something <clears throat> as well. We... Um, Reviewed it a couple years ago and added a couple questions Mm -hmm. and we're actually considering another review coming up maybe in the next two years. But, you know, just to let everyone know, it is something we look at and make sure it still makes sense, that it's still timely, that it's still data that you need for those things. So it is something we're very proud of and uh, hope that our members do utilize it to the extent that they're able to for the best outcomes because it's something yeah. we're really proud to talk about. Well, and, and to that end, I work with ASCA when they develop their benchmarking for, for their program, especially the financial side. So uh, we probably should talk about that because I think that um, adding a couple very simple benchmark uh, financial benchmarking tools, mm-hmm. it, the easy ones to calculate, I don't want to get into the complicated ones, sure. but there's a couple of easy ones and maybe that would be valuable to the state, you know, if, if people are actually using the ASCA ones and, you know, ASCA is expensive there, you know, right. there's no doubt about that right. and, and they're worth it, but not everybody can afford, you know, that expensive, um, you know, membership as well as that. that exactly. That so, so this is a great solution mm-hmm. for those folks. So you're growing still, right? We are. It's been, not only has the conference attendance been great, but it has been a great year for membership. 
we had kind of a nice consistent little steady flow of new member applications coming in a year round. So that's very exciting for us to see. And I think the biggest cause of that has been word of mouth recommendations from, and you know how it is, you know, people, and I think people are changing jobs more now than they did in the past. So you might have a person moving from one center to another, you know, they're able to be an administrator at their new job at a new center. And they say, (laughs) wow, if you guys haven't been involved in OASC, you need to get a membership application filled out. You need to be active. It's great. And so again, it's that, once you get plugged into that environment, mm-hmm. that community and those resources, you want to tell the rest of your peers. Right. And I do believe that has been something that for whatever reason has worked really well this year. I don't know that we haven't necessarily done anything to push. We didn't have a actual conscious concerted membership drive, but it seems that I did also, I think, have some good interactions with the board while they've been talking to their peers about it, and that has helped. But we've been very excited about kind of this new little influx of members we've been having this year Mm -hmm. because it's just good to feel like after everything we've been through, this is a good year. Yeah. And not every state's lucky in having good years, but here in Ohio, we are very grateful yeah. for the year we've had. No, and and having visited a lot of state associations over the last couple of years, you're doing much better than many of those state Thank associations. You. And it, it's a challenge, you know, I mean, even the larger states are having, you know, larger geographically, uh, you know, states are having problems getting people back. Um, you know, and again, it all depends upon the size of the surgery centers. You have relatively large surgery centers here. You do so have several, yes. fortunate there. Um, so how do you become a member? It's really easy to become a member. And, <laughs> and we'll, um, by the way, we'll provide a link to it, but uh, yeah, we'll talk yeah. about it. So there's two of the easiest ways are, is you can go to that web address I mentioned earlier, which again is www.o. A-A-S as in Sam, C as in cat, dot net. And there's a join tab right on the top menu and you can click there and you can either print out a form to fax or mail in or to scan an email. I don't, can't believe I just said fax. I'm showing <laughs> I don't know age. what that is anymore. What? And, um, or you can find a direct link to just sign up online and pay with a credit card through yeah. our secure online processing. You can do that. And if that all just sounds like too much and you just want to email me, uh, even though the email is Sam, like Uncle Sam, Sam at OAASC.net, I'm Heidi and it'll come to me. And yeah, I can I've never help been able to figure well. that one out. So, oh, it's a, it's a long story. I'll fill you in later, John. But um, I get lots of emails. Hey, Sam. And I just roll with it. But um, yeah, that two very easy ways. It is a weighted membership do yep. system with a minimum and a maximum. I think our minimum is seven fifty, and it's been that for ages. Yeah, yeah. And the maximum is twenty two fifty. But there's a little formula that you do uh, that you multiply against the number of procedures right, that right. you've done in the past year, and um, you just send that in. And it's it's an organizational membership, so you can put as many employees Good from point. your center on our mailing list, distribution list as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, even the benchmarking system has three different levels of access. So if there are other people on staff, you know, you can give folks access just to look, go in and look at the data yeah, and they yeah. can't enter it or do anything. Uh, so that's kind of nice too. 
And That's then, good to know. Actually, yeah. I probably should do that with our clients yeah. because we rely on our, our clients to give us that information. We could just get a read only and that would probably save exactly. some time. Great exactly. Exactly. You, there are three different levels. There's a read only, there's a read and enter. So someone can go in, they can look at it, they can enter, mm-hmm. but then there's that top level where you can do everything plus you approve it and then you submit it. Got it. Got so it. it's, it is, I think a very nice feature that you can give read only yeah. access. As always, Heidi, this is great talking to you. Great conference. Thank you for all the work that you do on a Thank on a so daily much. basis. Happy you look exhausted, it. though. I will say, I'm that's a little <laughs> tired, just a little. It You'll was be, rough uh... when the alarm went off this morning. I text my coworker. I'm lucky enough that I'm staying on site, but my uh, partner in crime that opened up this morning, she lives like five minutes away, so she stayed at home. But I text her and I said you can stop and take an extra breath because <laughs> I'm going to be downstairs about 20 minutes later than we planned. People have no clue how much it takes to put on one of these yep. conferences. We, of course, we were on the New York one uh, often and uh, uh, do a lot of work for the uh, the New York one. And I, I, I know I'm like you, you know, that, that, that it's a full day and uh, I, a lot of work that goes even before you even get here. I think about how many times I walk up and down the hallway and I'm yeah. amazed this carpet lasts as well as it does. <laughs> the fact that they have meetings constantly and there yeah. are people run, but you never stop. And this is a great site. We're at the uh, Hilton Polaris, uh, which are you always here? I, I don't We've even know. been here a lot lately. We are yeah. considering some different venues around town for next year. That's one reason why I can't announce, announce the dates what it's yet. Got, got it. But um, we've been here a lot, but we do definitely 98% of the time keep it within the outer belt. Yeah. yeah. For anyone who's not a Columbus person, I won't say 270, but, but we look at that outer belt area. Yeah. Um, because that's, you know, just the easiest. It makes the most sense. So uh, I don't know that we'll be back here next year. We might gotcha. be, but we'll have that information soon. Well, it's a great location. I know when I got on the thruway in New York to get here, it was every inch of the way was high speed until the last <laughs> last mile when I got off to, to get into the. So uh, trust me, there is no reason that you can't get to this location go. here. So Thank you, John. As always, Heidi, great talking to you. Thanks for having me. For my next interview, I interviewed our dear friend, Darren Smith. He is with SIS, and of course, he is a frequent interviewee in our podcast here. And uh, this time, he uh, spoke about a topic he discussed during the conference, and that is materials management. Let's listen. So it's uh, September 2023, Darren, and I'm here at the Ohio State Association meeting. And Darren Smith, who is, uh, I think you've been interviewed in this podcast more than any other person, maybe Kara. Newberry does more, Uh, but uh, it's great to have you here. You and I were, uh, we're walking around. There's a lot of vendor time to talk to other vendors and we were talking uh, and I didn't even look at the agenda and saw you're talking about materials management. And then we looked at each other and said, when was the last time Darren did a speech on materials management? We can't remember when, so. No, we may have, but uh, yeah. If it is, it hasn't been recent. It hasn't been recent, that's for sure. Well, and and so let's just start by talking about why you even did a session on it here in Mm -hmm. Ohio. You know, why are we... Why are we talking about this topic now? Well, it's an extremely popular topic because many of our administrators are nurses or (laughs) or they come from a a medical management background, but this isn't a class you get in nursing school, how to run a materials management program. It's just magical, right? You right. put your order in, stuff shows Somebody up, shows you pay up. for it. <laughs> At least and in the old days. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so people don't have a lot of knowledge on, am I running my materials management um, uh, process efficiently? 
Right. And how do I monitor those things? So I'm, I'm trying to give them at least a little something to go on. And well, let's start by saying, by pointing out, I hope most of our listeners know you're a nurse, you're with uh, mm-hmm. Surgical Information Systems. Uh, uh, you talk a lot about various, uh, you know, technology issues and how it interfaces with the clinical side. Um, and, uh, you know, I think materials managers, we were talking before we turned the recorder on that, you know, often it's your scrub tech, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, a, a nurse that uh, might have extra hours and, you know, need extra hours, or the administrator or the nurse managers that's doing that. Nobody that had training. None of them have been trained on materials management, the things to watch out for, the things that that are going to affect your number two spend in the surgery center. Absolutely, which is about 25% of the total uh, revenue pull, and it's probably going to go out in supplies costs. Exactly, exactly. And if, if, if I have something that's going to affect not only my number two spend, but also the results of that efficiency affects my number one spend, yeah. It's probably something I should educate myself about. And your number one customer, which we'd like to say is the patient, but often it's the doctor. Right. You know, making sure that they're happy with the supplies, that you don't run out of something he needs during the procedure. I mean, obviously we care about our nurses not running out of it, but mm-hmm. the doctor literally can take his business elsewhere. Exactly. So tell me, you know, what does an efficient um, materials management program look like? So we, we broke it down in our session today into a couple of specific uh, uh, priorities. And the first one was the people part, mm-hmm. is making sure that you have chosen the appropriate person to be that materials manager. Do they have the time to do the job? Do they have the skills to do the job? Have you given them the tools mm-hmm. to do the job? Uh, and then we talked about the processes and, and having very prescriptive processes. So when that person that works part-time has to go on medical leave, we have some very prescriptive processes they can follow to, how do I reorder something? How do I add something to the catalog? What do I do with something that expired? All of those are are processes that that need to be prescriptive so that someone can pick up or someone else left off. Uh, And then the final part that we were looking at was monitoring all that. Mm -hmm. How do I know what kind of reports do I run? What kind of things do I look look at to make sure that uh, we have an efficient process here? So, of course, paper is always the best, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Sticky notes on a monitor. That's the best that's right. materials management that's right. program. A monitor that's turned off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're in a different world. I mean, yeah. I started, you and I both are, are, are a little older than the average person out there. You, you're younger than me still, but, uh, you know, I mean, we started with paper systems. Though, no, though, truthfully, you know, our first system in the first surgery center I had was was Temple, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the predecessor to all of the the, the SIS products right, right now, really, and uh, and you know, and, and so it became very early in the ASC industry that you know you started to have materials management options out there, but you know, without getting specific about your your wonderful product out there, um, how important is having that information? to a materials manager today, as well as administration. It's not just the leadership, but also the materials manager. Right. So the materials manager, there isn't a lot of um, red flags out there that get waved at you. How do I know whether I'm over ordering? How do I know whether I'm under ordering? Am I getting a good deal on these items? Uh, There's not a whole lot out there that is going to supply that information to you. You got to go out and get it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, data is king. Mm-hmm. So if I have the data, I, I can use that information to determine, am I within a certain variance that I expected or, 
or um, do I have way too much supplies on hand or I'm yeah. not turning these over quick enough and things like that. I'm having to throw them out because they, exactly. they're uh, expiring. I'm reaching that expiration date. Yeah. And, and then on the administration side, vitally important in the surgery center. And that's why you see all the surgery center softwares having that materials management piece locked mm-hmm. into them because we get that flat fee. Yeah, and yeah. if I get a flat fee, I probably should know whether this is a case we need to encourage more of those to come to the surgery center, or is that a case that needs to be shunned from the surgery right, right, center? Right, right, Because, you know, we don't want to do those, you know, a Medicaid ACL at the surgery center because right. we're going to get 500 bucks for it, and it's going to cost us $3,000. Are you going to make it up in volume? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's all about the volume. It's all about the volume. <laughs> well, and, and having that information available and being able to, to run reports. I mean, a good materials manager is somebody, if you're not already in administration, that's going to be providing reports to the administrator, to the you know finance department that ultimately mm-hmm. gets to the board. So they need to remember that you know they got to have good information. It's got to be accurate and they got to act on or, be, or have somebody else act on that mm-hmm. information. Well, and it uh, for the administrator as well, I've seen a lot of high functioning administrators use that information for insurance negotiations. Yeah. Because you'll, you'll get to the, the negotiation table with an insurance company and, and you look at their reimbursement and you say, this doesn't even cover my cost. Yeah. And they say, prove it. Yeah. And many can't. So that's what they're counting on is that you can't prove it. Right, so right. Uh, here is exactly how much it costs me to do this case. And, and let's put that reasonable markup on it. And, and you can make money and I can make money and I can keep my doors open and keep the lower reimbursement and the lower outlay that you have to do mm-hmm. uh, as an insurance company rolling. Right. Because if not, if I go out of business, you're back at the hospital and you're right. going to pay you know, 60%, if not more, than yeah. you're paying me. It's interesting you say that, though. You know, recent experience has been, unfortunately, we're finding insurance companies are sometimes taking that short-term mentality. Um, and it's just, you know, because they're, you know, if they're, uh, publicly held, mm-hmm. you know, it's like that you go quarter to quarter. So the, the, the person that's negotiating the deal this quarter is not going to be there three months from now. What have you done for me lately? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, you come to him and you tell him, Hey, you know, I'm going to lose money on this. And he actually goes back to his boss that I just negotiated a deal where they're going to lose money in every single case. And they're still going to do them because, you know, because I got all the other business there. So you got to be very careful about how you present that information to those Mm -hmm. people and understand or trust that they are actually going to do something well with. That's just my advice out there on that one. Unfortunately, keep it in your back pocket. Keep it in your back pocket. That's exactly right. It's a tool that you can use. (laughs) Now, you know, I'm interested. I'll just tell you my experience is that some of my best materials manager before I became a full-time, you know, regulatory uh, person uh, or people from the military, mm-hmm. you know, a military background uh, who did purchasing because they, you know, they thought nothing of buying, you know, only 3,000, you know, <laughs> medical supplies. And talk about a prescriptive process. Exactly. Exactly. They had extremely prescriptive processes. Yeah. And they had to follow the rules. And if they didn't, you know, they were, there, there were a lot more consequences than what we have. Absolutely. What, do you, what do you think, you know, you've seen a lot of surgery centers, obviously, over your, your years. What do you think is a, you know, so what is a, what is a good materials manager look so, like? So we, we talked about uh, making sure that that materials manager has that detail orientation because, yeah. you know, a 1088C and a 1088B are two very different things yeah. when it comes to ordering, but also that accountability piece that 
I have a responsibility to the surgery center to get the best price possible and yeah. to follow the processes to make sure that that everyone is successful here, not only on the, the financial side, but the clinical side as well, having yeah. the appropriate materials here. So that, the right quality, and, that, yeah. that sense of ownership and accountability. But I also need that person that's self-directed. Yeah. So if I'm in a smaller surgery center and I tell you, okay, all you should need to to take care of materials management is five hours a week i'm going to rely on you to allocate that five hours a week yeah and if i'm pulling cases or if i'm doing other duties it, it's my job to say oh i need to go do my materials management yeah duties. yeah it's uh, it's interesting right now as we think about where um we've evolved I mean, right now we're dealing with some real staffing crises, which mm-hmm. hits every aspect. It's not just nursing. It's just not techs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just doctors. You know, I mean, um, we're we're finding it very difficult. You know, even finding receptionists right now can be difficult when, you know, for 20, 25 bucks an hour, they can be working at McDonald's, which I believe is the case in some places. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't know why you'd want to be flipping burgers at McDonald's compared to being a receptionist. But then again, if we're not paying 25 bucks an hour and you're young and, and need the money, I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that the same thing's happening here is how do you go out and find that quality person or should you like what you're implying it should be some often is somebody um that is got another function within the surgery center Mm -hmm. and it's it's usually the rule of thumb that that we looked at and and we tried to to tell people is if you're doing a thousand cases a year that should be a 0.2 fte Okay. So if you're doing somewhere between 5,000 and 6,000 cases, you should have a full-time materials manager. That's a good rule of thumb. And yeah. that, that's a, 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 just a rule of thumb that, that mm-hmm. we use to, to try to allocate that time. So the first part of that is, you know, finding the right personality in person to do that, but also yeah. who has that time. Right, right. Uh, who, and how is it not going to interfere with other duties that they have? Because you got to order. Yeah. <laughs> but you might be able to be a little bit short on, um, you, know, you know, somebody else might be able to cover for another job in, in the organization that Correct. you're sharing. Maybe they're the the first out, the first right. person that gets relieved once we get uh, uh, surgery techs freed up. Precisely. So Darren, one of the other things that I found is when I was an administrator, I had to keep a very close eye on the materials management function. I always had full-time materials managers. I always ran very mm-hmm. large centers. Uh, so they were doing the 5,000. They had a full-time FTE. The numbers exactly match with what you're talking about. The, but, but what I found is over time, when they got too busy or they got too, I'd almost say complacent in the job, they were no longer chasing the dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, they developed good relationships with the vendors. They did, you know, their, their uh, distributor, you know, was on, you know, was the first person they called. They didn't do the price shopping. Did you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we did. We, we talked a little bit about um, ways in which you can monitor the work that your people that are doing materials management. So, you know, are you, you're looking at a business review with your distributor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every quarter, I want you to bring me 10 things that we're ordering that are off contract and some on contract. Yeah, that's a good idea. You know, uh, am I monitoring my my turnover of of supplies? Uh, Am I monitoring my value of supplies on hand? Because Mm -hmm. if that is constantly rising, we're keeping too much on hand. Right. right. Uh, Is my usage matching my volume? So the more cases I'm doing, the more I'm buying. Uh, and those things should be parallel. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to see those spread apart and I don't want to see those intersect either. So, 
those are the things that you can kind of keep track of and kind of monitor to make sure that they are keeping up on pricing. They are keeping up on, on those types of things. And, and the, the GPO audit is an incredibly yeah. oh, yes. powerful tool. Yeah. And I'm amazed how many people don't ask for one of those. It, it is something you have to ask for. Well, and every year at least. Yeah. Or, or more frequently, if you're very high volume, you're absolutely right. I, I've seen places that didn't even know about it, let alone mm-hmm. that they could do it every year. Mm-hmm. And for the, why don't you describe it? For sure, a sure. So that that is a process where your uh, group purchasing organization gets a hold of all your invoices electronically, electronically, yeah, right. and and they have software built where it will take those invoices and the order numbers associated with them and compare them to the contracts that are loaded for your particular surgery mm-hmm. center, and they can produce a report for you that says on November eighth of of twenty twenty two. Uh, you were invoiced for $3 and 76 cents and it should have been $3 and 70 cents. Right. And, and now I have all this data in front of me that I can either take back to my vendors and say, Hey, I need rebuild for this at the appropriate price or figure out, Oh, I, I let that contract lapse right. or, or, or my you know, person wasn't in, in accounting, wasn't checking to make sure that the price was right. 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 Yeah. So, so that's an incredibly powerful tool that I don't think enough people know about and use. I, while we're on the topic of uh, purchasing people, though, uh, I did want to mention. Now, we uh, one of our centers recently had to let a purchasing person go because they found out that they were taking. I won't call them bought bribes, but they were taking. You know, they were offered a vacation if they were to pull all their, put all their business. I'm hoping that's the first time I've heard of this sort of. I mean, we know that there is that out there. It's the first time I've actually heard somebody. Mm-hmm. actually accept it. You know, mm-hmm. usually they're pretty honest with me or, or we, I mean, I, I'm not involved in this, but you know, our centers are, uh, are usually, you know, the, the people that are in that position are usually very honest about it. Yeah. It's um, usually pens, pencils, and donuts, right? Sometimes it can, uh, it can <laughs> balloon out there. Well, and even, you know, watch out for those, you know, Hey, we're going to be doing a conference down in, uh, Miami, mm-hmm. you know, in, in three weeks, we're going to talk about this. Well, look into what's really going on during that conference. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think this is a big deal, but you gotta, you gotta watch everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, and, a, and part of monitoring <clears throat> that, uh, monitoring those reports mm-hmm. is looking out for those kind of things. Right. You know, right. Uh, the invoice accuracy and those price variances and, uh, we, we tried to look at our high volume and high dollar we tried to renegotiate those every two years, if yeah. not more often these days. But uh, at least we were looking at those things so that, that maybe they're getting a little cozy with with right. the Arthrex rep or, or whatever the case may be. Now we're going to take those things out to bid every two years. So no one gets to be that comfortable. And, and it's not always somebody doing something that's really not ethical or illegal. Right. It just, as you said, if they get comfortable and they don't mm-hmm. feel like they have to call somebody else because... You know, they've been dealing with the same guy. And, and listen, I, I, I ran into this a lot. You know, the guys that I've been working with, say, at Elcon, you know, mm-hmm. for years, I got to know them well. They did a lot of favors for us as a surgery center and, mm-hmm. you know, showing up at 6 o'clock in the morning when we had a tough time. You know, nonetheless, you yes. still got to give me a good price, you yes. know, and, and it's still a business that we have to run here. You know, we're in a, a real challenge right now with supply chain. And um, one of the things that I've noticed, and I, I hope our audience knows this too, is that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're challenged with stocking up so that we don't run out of a supply and then finding supplies 
and using them before their expiration date. And I don't know if you've seen this, but as I've been doing surveys recently, the expiration dates are much closer to the current date. Mm-hmm. And I think what's happening is these supplies are dwindling. They're, they're, they're going out the door so quickly, mm-hmm. you know, that the stuff that we're getting from the vendors that still have it left are those that are, you know, that have been sitting around for a while. So I, I don't understand that given that, you know, you're, you're manufacturing and sending them out right away. But, but people have been noticing the strength or maybe vendors are starting to, you know, short date these things. I don't, I don't know. So some, some of the explanation that we've received on some of those is, is especially those things that are made outside this country. Uh, true, yeah. That the supply chain issues had such a vast effect on them that they sat on huge shipping containers yeah. of this were sitting in China or Mexico uh, good or point. Puerto Rico for six months before they could even get shipped. Yeah, yeah. So you're already getting something that was six months old. So Got you it. lost that six months right off the top. Yeah. And that has exacerbated. Yeah, the that makes sense. Thanks for pointing that out. Now, now I get it. So I, I guess lastly, uh, inventory management. Mm-hmm. It's part of materials management, obviously. It's one of the biggest challenges. You know, the major software packages, yours in particular, you know, has a good inventory package, which nobody uses correctly, by the way. I, mm-hmm. My experience, I think you'll admit it, yep. is that it's so hard to set these systems up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so talk a little bit about making sure that your vendor helps you, mm-hmm. tells you how to do it, don't, and, do, and take the time to do it right, because the amount of time you're going to waste down the road, if it's not set up correctly, is going to be um, quite a big factor in your efficiency. Yeah, it, it exacerbates <clears throat> itself, uh, and, and it's not linear. Right. Uh, it definitely turns into a bigger problem down the road. Uh, so we encourage everyone to spend the amount of time that it's going to take to set those things up correctly. Yeah. And lean on your vendors, right? Your vendors have all this information in their system. That's how they're sending bills out to you. So have them verify that information. And, and, and when you're trying to set up a new system, be very critical about pulling any inf- in, yeah. any information from your old system in, because as you know, garbage in garbage right, out. Right. And if you don't trust that information, go elsewhere to find it. Uh, because you can get it. You can get it from your vendors. You can sometimes get it right from yeah. your GPO. You you have a lot of other places where that information lives. Well, that's a really good point because, you know, the systems that you're converting from, mm-hmm. you've had for years. Those some of the 50%, I don't know, mm-hmm. but a lot of those products probably no longer exist or, or certainly are not the same type of a product there. Get rid of all that garbage. Mm-hmm. Get rid of the, the old codes that were in there, you know, where the product's been changed 17 times and you're still, you, right. you remember, oh, I got a, I, I got to load this one here, but I really meant this one over here. Mm-hmm. That's I remember all. back in the good old days when we couldn't delete anything. Yeah. And we put the ZZ in front of them, and you've got those 4,000 yeah. supplies at the end of your <laughs> The last list. 50 pages you threw exactly. out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Are the ones that, that you no longer order. We've been around a long time. I yeah, think many, many younger people have no idea what we're talking about. Um, I, you know, another one of my pet peeves, which is a little bit off topic, but still, you know, it uh, about uh, when we're talking about the computer systems, um, training mm-hmm. on the use of the system. Um, Darren, you and I, I know we've talked about this before, but every one of the major vendors out there, including SIS, of course, have incredible training programs. There, even if you have to pay for that training, you know, people seem to be adverse or they, you know, you train somebody in the place and then they train somebody else and that person trains another person. And by it's like that, that, you know, 
a middle school, you know, telephone. telephone. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, by the time it gets down and, and then they, they don't know about those new innovations out there or the new product delivery or the, or, you know, uh, availability, all the changes there. Talk a little bit about how important that is to, uh, to your customers. Yeah. And it's, it's really, really hard to calculate ROI of training. Yeah. Um, yeah. training is, is not, you know, if I, I pay a hundred bucks for someone to come and train my staff, how do I prove that it was yeah. worth it? And so it's a really challenging thing to get people to to admit I don't know all the answers and yeah. I do need help. And uh, even though you know we've had the same materials manager for the last five years, that that person doesn't need training as well. Yeah. So so the ROI is really hard to 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 manage, but it, we look at it as the cost of doing business. Yeah is not only do the the physicians require um, a, a extra yearly uh, documentation of training, nurses have to keep their license yeah. up. We want to look at materials management at, at that same level, that they're going to need continuing education yeah. in order to keep their skills up so that they can adapt with the changing markets. Well, and, and we don't always absorb all of the functionality of our systems in the mm -hmm. beginning. I'll give you an example. As I'm driving down here, I'm listening to a podcast. I, I you, you can see all of our computers are, are Macs. But um, you know, all of them are, are Macs in our studio. I, I learned by experimentation. Here I'm listening to a podcast Mm -hmm. which talks about all this functionality. I had no idea what mm -hmm. was there. And I've been using the system for four years now. <laughs> but the same things happen there. You know, you train them, but maybe they didn't pick it up the first time. Right. Or you add some new functionality that's that hasn't been there before. Because when you're going through implementation, your hair's on fire. Yeah, you right. just want to get the supplies in the door. Right. You just want to the get bare the minimum. bill out the door. Right. You just want to get the minimum documentation. You're not worried about the efficiency at that time. Right. But you can't forget about it. That's when... Right. You get six months down the road, okay, let's revisit this. Or six weeks down the road, okay, let's revisit this. Am I using all the different functions that I have available and that I'm paying for? I was just going to say, you're paying a lot of money for mm -hmm. any of these systems. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you want to pay a little bit extra money to be able to use all that functionality? Mm -hmm. And the self-training modules have come so far. Yeah, we learned um, a lot during there COVID. Is, there is an incredible amount of of. Uh, content out there yeah. for video training and and uh, uh, you know having that that machine learning training yeah. uh, that is is uh, has a better understanding of of how to create content that you're going to understand and be able to repeat it exactly. as opposed to having somebody do the training for you and having to ask questions over again, which you might not ask the second time because you're embarrassed that mm -hmm. you didn't pick it up the first time. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing with our virtual conferences. Every one of them is recorded. Every one of them you can listen to over and over again. Uh, same concept here with the training. Use, you know, if you're going to spend the money for a good software package like SIS, you also want to make sure that you're getting the full functionality there, which means you got to do the training. I love self-directed training because I can fast forward through the stuff right. I know. <laughs> All my sexual harassment training every year. <laughs> you know, I, I work for five different companies. I have to go through five training. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing here. You're right. You know, you want to pick up on those things that you didn't learn the first time around. Mm -hmm. Darren, as always, it's a great talking to you. I, I think, I think we have something up coming up very soon that that'll go out on the podcast. You probably don't know it, people behind the scene that schedule you, but uh, <laughs> as always, it's a great, uh, great having you uh, on the podcast. Thanks a lot, John. I appreciate it. 
Next, I had the pleasure of speaking to Eric Plinky. He is with Dinsmore and Scholl, a law firm in Ohio, and he uh, talked about an interesting topic, MPDB. We rarely talk about the National Practitioner Data Bank uh, in any of our conferences, and uh, this uh, this was ended up being a very interesting interview. Let's listen. I'm here at the Ohio State Association meeting with Eric Plinky. He's with Dinsmore. Uh, are there more names in the Dinsmore name? It's Dinsmore and Shoal, actually. Okay, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not a, you're not your name isn't up there no, yet. No, but you'll nor, be up there nor so. will it ever be. <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. So uh, I, I apologize to you because I missed your presentation because I got into a conversation with one of the other vendors here and sure. and completely missed it. So, uh, but you and I have talked quite a bit about what you talked about. And uh, what was the name of your presentation? Uh, so it was uh, NPDB uh, and professional reporting update. Gotcha. And and it was fascinating to me, the MPDB side of it, because I don't think I've ever heard a speaker at a, a, a state association, let alone, you know, a national association, talk about this topic. And yet every single one of our surgery centers, of course, deals with the MPD literally on a daily basis, you know, at least when they're doing a credentialing. And so I, I had a whole bunch of questions and uh, and then you and I talked. And uh, so, so let's just start by talking about what your presentation was focused on. Yeah. So really, John, it was focused on, you know, as you said, you know, getting the word out that it's not a topic of, you know, frequent discussion from a seminar or educational standpoint, but I think from a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, uh, real-life interactions within an ASC setting, you know, reporting issues do come up, mm-hmm. whether it's credentialing on the front end, uh, reappointment, uh, or you have an incident or occurrence uh, in the ASC setting that triggers questions of, you know, a professional review action or some reporting issue, or, you know, you're just trying to do the right thing of, you know, calling a timeout on somebody yeah. while you can do an, an investigation. And and each of those points in the review process raises questions for data bank reporting, uh, depending on what you're doing and how you're doing it and, and the circumstances under which you're doing it. And then on top of that, as, as I'm sure you've seen in your, in your experience in the industry, you know, in, in various states, and I submit nationally, there's a movement to be more accountable, more transparent, uh, whether it be NPDB reporting or just professional reporting, because mm-hmm. all the ASCs are full of professionals, whether they be physicians, uh, nurses, CRNAs, what have you, that, that each of those individuals, there may be reporting requirements for the entity for misconduct separate and apart from uh, from what the data bank may require. So mm-hmm. that'll vary a bit by state, but I've done some authorship on this. It's been published. Uh, and, uh, and here in Ohio, it's been a, it's been a really significant, uh, point of emphasis for our regulatory board. So that's really what I was trying to tackle, mm-hmm. uh, in this seminar I was just being proactive and trying to move, uh, this reporting issue, whether it be data bank, uh, NPDB reporting or professional reporting to our state level agencies, from sort of a back of the mind to front of the mind salience to mm-hmm. to move it up on the on the checklist of, of our issues and and within your policies and procedures and even using some of the tools that are out there for compliance training so that you know when these things do happen you're prepared mm-hmm. uh, to handle them according to best practice to to not be one of those centers that gets pulled into one of these uh, nuclear threat uh, yeah. bet the company uh, cases from a from a practitioner that has had an incident at your place or others. 
Well, and let's start with that. I mean, this uh, improper credentialing, I, I do expert witness, as I mentioned to you before, uh, it's becoming one of those things that's that's uh, tagged on to a lot of the malpractice case. I won't say a lot of them, but but it's something yeah. that plaintiff's attorneys are getting familiar with. And, uh, you know, they just throw it in with all the other accusations that they make at the same time, which means that suddenly your credentialing process comes under scrutiny during a, during a, a lawsuit. Uh, I'd much rather, you know, as a surveyor, I want to make sure that, you know, also that that credentialing is done properly. So now there's two, you know, levels of threat. The surveyors are going to yeah. catch you or, um, you know, you're going to end up with a lawsuit at some point. Unfortunately, we, you know, it's difficult to avoid them completely uh, in this industry. So we we have to let our listeners remember or, you know, be mindful of the fact that improper credentialing is one of the the hotter topics out there right now. Um, but beyond that, let's just start with some of the basics. What is the MPDB and, you know, what's its main purpose out there? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think the origin story is important because uh, if you're going to, if you're going to triage and handle these issues, I think you have to have a good understanding of what the public policies are and, and why this law exists, where it came from. And uh, the NPDB reporting structure, I mean, it, it, it frankly, it predates HIPAA. So mm -hmm. for, for those of us that have been around for a while, I think it was a 1986 law, the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act, uh, that actually stemmed from some developments at various federal agencies, but I think primarily from the VA of some QA uh, processes. Uh, and really, it was it was there's five stated congressional objectives. Uh, they focus on peer review that peer review ha should have an active role in mm -hmm. in in facility uh, oversight of their it's practitioners. Part of the quality improvement. Yeah. Uh, but but really fundamentally the the law was there to stop at the time what was sort of state hopping or facility yeah. hopping where a physician might have issues in in one given state or at a given facility they're reviewing that physician and and while that review is going on there's threats of of suit from the physician to the facility you know the practitioner goes to another state or another facility and there's no there's no reporting of what those issues were from the first facility yeah. at the time one of the stated reasons was the first facility was hesitant to report because of threat of litigation. Yeah, And then it was also difficult in those facilities to get members of the medical staff to participate in peer review because they, were they would be wrapped soon. up, they would be wrapped yeah. up in, in the litigation. So yeah. Congress addressed that sort of full sale in, in developing uh, a reporting system through the data bank, which came along through the regulations and providing some federal immunities to, uh, to protect uh, peer review, um, and those those immunities are really significant. There's there's both the immunity to the report itself, uh, but then there's also a broader immunity to the peer review action uh, process or the the uh, the professional review action process is the term under that law. But so you know the data bank is for some of us getting a little long in the tooth. But yeah. uh, I, I think the the public policy. Uh, aspects of it are really, you know, positive. They're they're there for the right reasons. And one of the other parts that I talked about today was really getting the message out there that while it's sort of a, a stick and a carrot or carrot and a stick approach that, hey, you have to follow the law, but that there are benefits to it in the form mm -hmm. of the immunity. And those immunities exist, uh, at least under Ohio law, for, for the professional or entity reporting that our state requires. So, you know, you, you want to do the right thing, in, in protecting your patients, protecting the public, making an issue known, uh, and then in exchange for that, uh, because that's not an easy decision. You know, nobody nobody wants to be the rat, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in a lot of professions, there's sort of a, a culture of of silence. Uh, nobody, and then just at a personal level, nobody wants to report 
you know, some of our surgery centers are small. You might be working, you might be, say, the medical director, and, and one of the physicians you're reviewing is somebody you, you trained with or yeah. you yeah. trained. And it's just on a personal level, it makes it very hard to, to, to discharge that reporting duty. Uh, but under the law, you know, it is the law. Yeah. Uh, there are advantages to doing it. Uh, you're not necessarily ending somebody's career. I mean, I think it's a complicated thing that needs thorough discussion and thorough consideration. Uh, but, uh, but we're in a different environment now. Um, and, and all you have to do is look back over the last 10 to 15 years of, of the regional or national uh, media attention, whether it be, you know, Dr. Strauss here at Ohio State, Dr. Yeah. Nasser, uh, there was the physician at USC whose name is escaping me right now, but there's Dr. Death. I mean, yeah. it, it just seems like every couple of months or every year, there, there's a new issue of, of a physician who either intentionally or unintentionally uh, had had bad outcomes or abused patients, and one of the one of the common threads in a lot of those a lot of those situations is you know was was there proper reporting? Did did people do what they were required to do mm-hmm. at the facility level to report that? And then also at the individual level, you know, physicians may have reporting obligations. There may be reporting obligations for the nurses and what have you. Were those things done? Because you know, if you if you missed one of those steps, you're going to get pulled in, in in the media attention to one of those quote bad centers end quote yeah. that didn't didn't do their duty, and uh, nobody wants to be in that situation. So I I think you're at risk uh, if if you're not bringing this to to the forefront of of your policies to the forefront of your procedures in in just making sure that you're considering uh, knowing what the what the reporting obligations are and doing a good faith effort to review the circumstances and report when needed. So let's focus on that for a second, because I think I, I related to you before we spoke about a story that about a situation that happened 15 years ago, you know, where I walked into a surgery center, I looked at an MPDB report, which was 70 pages long. <laughs> and, you know, I asked the credentialing coordinator what she did about it, you know, and she says, oh, I, I, you know, and, and I think I joked because she, she looked like she was 13 years old, <laughs> you know, and, and clearly, underqualified for this position. But, you know, she had a medical director, she had an administrator, a director of nursing there who, you know, she theoretically reported to. Uh, But it was very apparent to me that they threw it in the file Mm -hmm. and left it in there. And it was 70 pages long. Now, I'm not one to say, okay, maybe we shouldn't have granted privileges there. That's not that's not my role, right? But a physician needs to look at this and figure this out. So let's let's narrow in on that right now. Is that you know what should our listeners be looking at, and and start you know from the people that are looking at it, which are often you know clerical people are looking at the credentialing, to the administrator to the medical director. Ultimately, it's got to be decided by you know a medical professional, hopefully somebody in the same field. But I really want our listeners to understand how important it is that we don't just file these documents in our credential files, and maybe even if you can give some stories, you know, about how <laughs> how you've helped somebody <laughs> along the way. Well, I, I think you know. I guess reasonable minds can differ if it's worse to not get the information to begin with <laughs> or to get it and then not read it. I, yeah. I submit it's, it's worse to get it and not review right. it, not make it part of the process. Cause, cause all of your policies are, are telling you to do that. All your policies are, you know, the law tells you to do that. Right. right. Um, and, and I think really from a triage standpoint, it starts with the policies, you know, are your policies up to date? Uh, what are your forms say? Because you're right. 
uh, the, the, the NPDB reports are complicated. And for some of these provi- providers that have had, you know, a significant claim history or some other adverse action history, they can be substantial, you know, 70 right. pages. And, and nowadays when you render the electronic, uh, format of the NPDB into paper, yeah. you know, I think it becomes even longer and harder to read. And what I've developed for some clients is, is really, Hey, here's here's a form where instead of handling your committee members seventy pages, yeah. you're you're prefacing it with, you know, here here's a shortcut to what's in what's in the NPDB, uh, what's antiquated, what's current, mm-hmm. uh, and then and and have that form uh, 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 created from your policies, you know, because mm-hmm. you're going to have credentialing uh, criteria and components that will require further scrutiny, some of which will be quality or competence related, but some of which may be administratively related. You know, some some facilities may say, hey, if you've got three claims in the last 24 months, we're gonna we're gonna send those cases to QA or we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna do some some extensive some review. Focus on that. Review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you need to have have forms that are helping uh, truncate or abbreviate the volume of information you're getting, whether it be original source or or NPDB or other things uh, to focus the members in to sort of make their jobs a little bit easier so that you're not missing things. Uh, and I think that's sort of where it starts mm-hmm. uh, because it's easy. You know, your committee members are often your, your facility leaders. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're and leaders. Yeah, yeah. They're leaders because they're busy right. and, and they're not getting paid extra to, to come and sit in your 6 a.m. credentialing uh, committee meetings. In yeah. fact, they're probably, you know, they're probably losing and, and money for every minute <laughs> yeah. that you're there. Yeah, yeah. That they're there. So, yeah. So you have to fight against that because yeah. uh, the, like you're saying, this is fertile ground for claims. I think there's yeah. landmines in every, in every uh, credentialing process. Um, I, I, you know, I, thankfully I don't have a ton of horror stories to relate <laughs> about this. <laughs> That's actually but, good. <laughs> but I have had clients, you know, surgery yeah. center clients who um, are in a rush to get somebody credentialed yeah. and, and, and I think anytime there's a rush or anytime somebody's saying, Hey, I got, I've got, you know, X number of cases and, and the business people are getting excited because you're going to fill your rooms and, yeah. and what have you. I mean, that's really the time where you have to stay the course, run your regular processes, um, and not, not expedite a, a committee mm-hmm. review for something. Cause I did have one where, a client was was pushing through a practitioner, and they uh, they just happened to call me because they were also a candidate for ownership, which yeah. wasn't normal because you know t- typically somebody comes on staff and works there for a number of years and see if it's a good fit. But this physician from day one was asking about ownership, had a big volume, and uh, I think this might have been back in the old days when we had like ordinary temporary privileges yeah, yeah. under the bylaws and. <clears throat> And when the client read me the name, I was thinking, hmm, that name sounds a little familiar. <laughs> Not good when you're a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I just did some quick, uh, you know, digging and, and was pay, able to pull up some, you know, non, non-flattering information that they, that hadn't been disclosed. It wasn't that the physician had misled them or anything. It was just the way the questions were. I think he was yeah. able to plausibly deny certain things. And, and so just by happenstance, we were able to get, you know, a more thorough review and, 
And, you know, I think the committee still proceeded in a manner, but they proceeded in a manner differently uh, than, than if they had just, you know, rammed it through. Yeah. Uh, and so they were able to get some safeguards in place just to make sure that, you know, quality wise, the physician fit. But uh, I just, I think it's frankly, you, you've hit on it. I, I think it's, it's harder to do consistent quality credentialing, frankly, than it might be when an incident arises. Yeah. Because your systems are trained to focus on an incident, identify and correct and intervene, and and everybody's you know sort of focused on doing that. The, on the credentialing side, on the front end, you know that's that's where the landmines are, and it, mm-hmm. I think it's harder to uh, to detect those. But I do think just being thorough and reviewing your policies and your criteria to make sure it's it's focused on the issues that can help you identify the landmines uh, before you step on them. Uh, I, I think that's 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 been my experience of what I've helped clients do. And what strikes me too that you know, as a surveyor, we have you know um, accreditation standards and we have regulations and uh, interpretive guidelines that focus mm-hmm. on risk management. And yeah. then we have the same thing for credentialing. By the right. way, you can't see me, but I'm using my hands <laughs> as I'm just throwing the two sides here. But the two of them are like risk management starts with making sure you don't bring doctors on board right. in the first place that right. are likely to cause a problem. Yeah. And it's just as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, man, you know, I, even when I do education on risk management, I'm starting at the wrong point. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. we're focusing on those incidents that maybe wouldn't have even occurred if somebody had vetted that patient, that yeah. doctor right from the very beginning. Yeah. And we're seeing that, unfortunately, you know, because it's it is easier. I mean, you know, surgery centers are, you know, mostly money making ventures, unlike hospitals. Hospitals are more likely to be very careful about that, unfortunately, than a surgery center will, especially when, you know, when there's a possibility of somebody bringing a whole bunch of cases to this organization. So, um, you know, we've got to be much more careful about about assuring that, uh, you know, that doctor who really wants, like you said, you know, the fact that they might want to have their privileges like tomorrow mm-hmm. might be a warning sign that there might be some reason that they're going, for, you know, from a hospital who is saying, hey, I, I really don't want you here or never, you know, reported anything to MPDB and just got rid of a bad actor, you know, that maybe didn't have serious problems, but, you know, had had indications that there was going to be a problem. Yeah. yeah and I, th- I think your board, you know, your board training comes into play here yeah. because at the end of the day, you know, that, that committee is reporting up to the board and the board has to bless things. So you, you need to make sure that in your review processes at the board level, you know, you have, you're 100% confident that your credentialing committee you know, did its did job, job. Yeah. and, and, you know, that shouldn't be something that's on the, like the consent agenda. That should yeah. be a meaningful, you know, substantive review process, uh, because, you know, you, you have fiduciary duty issues, you mm-hmm. have other, other legal obligations as a board member, uh, that, that create risk for you. And, and so I think it's sort of an up the, up the chain, uh, mm-hmm. a vertical, uh, consideration here that, you know, at multiple levels, you can have policies and procedures and, and and in effect that can reduce this risk as you note that's what you're talking about is the management of the risk yeah, you know yeah. we often think of it as well you manage the risk after it arises yeah. well the risk is is there from the front end and you need to manage it there too yeah 
You brought up something uh, totally a little bit off topic here, but you mentioned consent agendas. Uh-huh. Um, I've served on a lot of boards, you know, nonprofits uh, over the years too, and I dislike consent agendas. I really dislike them in surgery centers because um, it's a good way to kind of whitewash some of these things. And if you read the interpretive guidelines, and I'm sure you know very well, is that that really isn't the intent of the interpretive guidelines. There needs to be a conversation. At the very least, as you were saying, making sure that the governing body is comfortable that the you know, the peer review process, um, uh, the credentialing process was done properly. And to throw it into a consent agenda, I feel, actually uh, bypasses the interpretive guidelines on that area. Yeah. That, that Mary, well, I haven't read those interpretive guidelines recently, yeah. but just, just, from a, just from a, you know, corporate counsel standpoint, yeah, you really, you really need, uh, you need the board to be uh, integrated and, mm-hmm. and involved, and as and in surgery centers, they usually are. I mean, right, this, right. you know, the They're surgery center active. environment isn't one yeah. where typically your board is 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 asleep at the wheel or something like that, or not paying attention because they're usually the people that are the leaders. I do think it may vary depending on whether it's a JV and, and depending yeah, right. on the hospital, hospital involved, yeah. or a management company. Uh, you know, you may. You know that's that's one of the dangers of a of a of a you know third party manager is you start to think, you know, well they're managing and so you you really got to remind your board members of of what their duties are and that uh, uh, you know those still apply even if you've got a management company uh, and and really yeah like you said just trying to avoid the use of the consent agenda I mean the companies are are not you know, your 20 hospital health systems that mm-hmm. where you, you need a consent agenda to get yeah. through meetings. Uh, these are usually smaller businesses, smaller enterprises, uh, that there's really no reason to have a, a really substantial consent agenda. Well, and my argument would be if you're running that board meeting well, and we do a very good job of it, that board meeting is only an hour long anyway. You do a consent agenda, the meeting's only 10 minutes long, which the doctors <laughs> might like, but I, right. as a surveyor, have a real problem with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It gives me heartache as a lawyer, too, because, you know, that's the, that's where the plaintiffs are looking first. Yeah. Uh, even Whether it's a commercial litigation claim or a med mal claim, I mean, you, you can really – you can really identify if you're a clever plaintiff's attorney some some novel theories, yeah. uh, depending on the involvement of your board. Well, and, and let's talk about that just for a second too. Is that you mentioned uh, board education? That's one of our challenges right now. Is that so many of our board, you know, they don't have the time. I get it. You know, they're doctors. They've you know every minute that they're in not only the credentialing meeting but the governing body meeting is you know a do, you know. I know they probably come up with a number, but they're losing money for every minute mm-hmm. that they're in there, and they want these things over with very quickly. And, and to that end, they don't always know the rules. They're, they're not reading the interpretive guidelines or the you know the conditions for coverage. They're certainly not reading the accreditation standards. Now you don't know this, but as a as a podcast, we've introduced the governing body uh, episodes. So there's oh, okay. a, there's actually focused episodes. There's only one right now, but it's one of those things I'll that we're working on. I'll have to track that down. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, the, but our goal is to try to give a. 20 minute, you know, we try to keep it to 20 minutes. Good luck with me talking. Um, 20 minute, you know, conversation about a very specific topic that's important to them. And I think this is one, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, this is a perfect thing to talk about. Um, And I think, uh, you know, they, I I hate to say it this way, sometimes we just have to scare people by giving them, you know, what, what the horror stories are out there. And you want to avoid that. None of us ever want to be in court because again, talk about losing time, in a board right, meeting, you right. know, good luck spending all your time and and not only that, but paying a lawyer, yes. <laughs> you know, while yes. you're having those conversations, right? And you you need to avoid that as much as possible. But I do think as an industry, we don't do a great job 
of getting uh, board members to conferences like this, mm-hmm. you know, to educational programs like we put on or listening to podcasts. And there's certainly no books out there that they want to read. I do have a book out there about it, but you know, I know not many people read it since it's not at the Amazon top of the uh, top of the list there. Uh, but I, I, I think, uh, you know, one, one thing our, t- our listeners need to take away from this is that this conversation that they need to have after they listen to this podcast is not just with the credentialing committee, but with the governing body. Yeah, that yeah. you know, you've got some incredible tools out there. The National Practitioner Data Bank report, that the application itself, you know, where they outline all the the legal cases that they've had. Those are things that you need to spend some time looking at instead of just you know, you know, in, instead of during the board meeting, somebody just saying, "Hey, Doctor Smith is up for." up for uh, privileges, uh, any objections to right, giving them those privileges. Right. That's not the way this should work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a risk. Um, and, you know, working in nonprofit health system arena too. I mean, that, that is something where, you know, those clients are used to that yeah. type of training because you right. got community members or it's probably a you know, requirement people, yeah, yeah. on the board. And, and so it, it's a different animal uh, in a lot of respects. Uh, but i you know, and my clients are all over the place. I have clients that, you know, make me come, you know, twice a year and do compliance mm-hmm. training, not just to the board, but to the entire membership. Yeah. And that's great, you know, and, and history tells me anecdotal, but still mm-hmm. 30 years worth of experience tells me that, you know, those clients that are engaged in that, you know, sort of prophylactic approach to training, whether it be just the board members or all of their physician investors uh, have fewer disputes, you know, have fewer mm-hmm. issues that arise. So, I mean, it's, it really is an investment of, you know, are you going to pay less on the, on the, you know, training and educational end, or are you going to roll the dice and, and see, Hey, you know, let's see what the claims look like. Not that anybody is consciously making that decision because yeah. no, you know, nobody's that, 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 reckless or naive, but I think it's just not appreciating the investment and not appreciating the risk. So going back to what you're saying, maybe, you you know, a a horror story or scaring them to death Mm -hmm. works. And, and when I do those board trainings, I usually include one or or two of those. (laughs) Otherwise they fall asleep or spend most of their time looking at their cell phones. It's sort of like, I think you and I are about the same age. So it's sort of, sort of back when we were in school, you know, they'd make you watch those scared straight videos. Yeah. 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 Yeah, They worked. Yeah. They were right. (laughs) Eric, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I think you covered a topic that we, uh, you know, we need to spend some more time looking at, and uh, I appreciate your time. Oh, glad to do it, John. It's been great. Thank Thanks. you. As is a tradition in our Ohio State Association special episodes uh, at the Ohio conferences, we had a chance to talk to Kara Newbury, who is from Columbus, Ohio, and of course she is the corporate counsel for the ASC Association. She gave us an update on what's going on with the ASC Association and, and legal and legislative issues that are going on in the industry. So I'm here at the Ohio State Association meeting in September of 2023. I'm here with our my dear friend Kara, who is a local person here in in Columbus. So you you only have to travel uh, 15 minutes to get I, here. My favorite meeting of the year. <laughs> you don't have to get on an airplane. Well, thanks so much. I know you're in a in a hurry here, and you had a opportunity to speak to the audience about what's going on federally. Uh, as I mentioned to you, we've talked to Bill. You know, we've talked extensively on the podcast. So we're not going to repeat a lot of that stuff, but there were a couple of things that, um, that you talk, you and I talked about beforehand. Let's start by, you know, what's been asked as response to the, the proposed 2024 um, 
because there were a number of things that um, that came out that we know we weren't terribly happy with. I think um, the buzzword that CMS and Congress has been using a lot is transparency. And yeah. I think that the lack of transparency in this rule was what disappointed me the most yeah. and what we will be bringing up in a meeting that we have uh, coming up on October 3rd with senior CMS staff. Yeah. Um, every year we ask for procedures to be added to the ASC covered procedure and list. And precisely how many were added this year? Uh, just an estimate. Propo well, <laughs> well, so proposed, they were all dental codes. Right. I mean, zero. Um, I mean, there zero, were just... Yeah. Zero surgical. <laughs> um, there's one dental code that we had requested. Yeah. Um, and zero of the other surgical codes, including total shoulder arthroplasty remains off of the ASC cover procedure list. And as I've been harping on now for a while and put in our comment letter, you know, we had total knee added in 2020 and total hip added in 2021. And in 2021, ASC's performed um, almost 21,000 total yeah. knees on Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries and nearly 10,000 total hips. Yeah. And they won't add total shoulder. And so when we talk with the chief transformation officer at CMS in mm -hmm. early October, um, that is one, going to be one of our um, keys of that conversation is, you know, somebody just needs to explain to us why um, they refuse to even discuss it. Yeah. I, when they're, they're even much more intensive cases are included in that list, as you said, it, it makes no sense at all. And we don't, we, you know, it's I kind of balance that because I don't want to say, well, you have this on this list yeah. or that on that list because we don't <laughs> want them going. We don't want them going backwards <laughs> and taking codes yeah. that we know that we can perform off of our list. But yes, it's just puzzling. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, now I popped into your session. I've been doing a whole bunch of recordings here, and I popped into your session very quickly, and you were talking about the uh, information that's provided to um, that, that's available on the public website. Uh, so all of this information that we uh, provide as part of the Medicare Quality Reporting Program ends up, um, in, you know, available to the public, but most of us don't know how to access it. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and how useful that could be for us? Right. Just because something is publicly available doesn't mean that the general public knows where, where to is. access yeah. it. That's absolutely true. Um, so, yes, all the response, you know, all of the reporting that facilities do um, is posted on cms.gov in a very um, confusing yeah. uh, place and, and manner. And so ASCA advocated for a better site, and I think you're going to share we will. Um, yeah. the link. Um, and it's not, it's not a .gov, but it's a .com that's um, run through CMS's um, contractor. But on this qualityreportingcenter.com, mm -hmm. you can go and compare um, your data to um, hospital outpatient departments, other ASCs in your area. And I think that'll really become even more important when we have measures such as the OSCAP survey yeah, on yeah. there. And it'll be easier for um, the general public to do um, a comparison of, of the data. Now, maybe I'm just a cynic. <laughs> do yeah. I think that there's going to be a lot of um, traffic to um, those sites um, from the public, from it's the public, yeah. doubtful. I, I think, yeah, I think part of the other, you know, CMS and they mm -hmm. think that maybe the media will, you yeah. know, you mentioned the public, maybe they think that the media will look at it and seize upon it. And um, of course my fear is that, um, you know, maybe it'll be misconstrued yeah. or, or they'll or pull they will, the bad examples exactly. out there, which are very rare and yeah. not, and not highlight, yeah. and not highlight all of the positive 
um, outcomes that are happening in ASCs. Um, you mentioned OSCAPs, which is not actually uh, specifically referenced in, in the uh, summaries. Um, but if you read into it, like you and I both read all 950 pages, and I think it was on page eight. I mean, I'm joking here, but it was buried deep that OSCAPs is there. It they, they basically haven't made any changes, and that's why they didn't highlight it. But what's happening with them? So that's exactly right. Um, even though, and we do this sometimes in our comment letter, even though there were no um, proposed changes to the survey, we mm -hmm. seized upon the opportunity when we're already commenting on other measures to comment on OSCAPs because it is coming. Yeah. Um, it goes into effect on a mandatory, mandatory basis for hospital outpatient apartments in 2024. It becomes mandatory for ASCs in 2025. Um, we're trying to tell people like you oh. need to reach out. You need to start talking yeah. to the vendors because it is a process. You have to work with a third party vendor, unfortunately. Um, and it's going to take, take some time to get up and running. I know on ask a connect, there was a lot of conversation this week about um, how it integrates with their um, EHR yeah. vendor. So you're going to have to do some work and communication with, you know, if you have an EHR vendor. Um, so it's going to take some time to get set up. And so even though 2025 seems like it's so far away, uh, it is not. And yeah. we hope that people <clears throat> will reach out. There are 15 approved vendors right now, um, but there's only a, f a handful really um, who seem equipped to really onboard a lot of ASCs mm -hmm. at this point. Um, ASCA does have a special price for um, Prescani with Prescani. I know there have been some concerns and questions about mm -hmm. Prescani, but um, you know our understanding is they're trying to work um, through some of those uh, hiccups and, and hopefully uh, you know have an even better product by the time it becomes mandatory. But if people want to reach out to me, I'm happy to provide them a couple of other uh, names of some of the vendors yeah. that we've that we've spoken with who seem good as well. I will tell you that not all vendors offer all of the modes of yeah. the survey that are Meaning allowed. The different ways to communicate with the patient. Correct. So some of them only do a phone survey. Yeah. Because they've uh, determined that the phone is the most effective. They think they get the best response rate, um, and so some of them don't do a mail mode. Right. And thank you for mentioning Prescani because there's been a lot of concern about that. But um, uh, ASCA has been very great. Uh, has been very good about making sure that you connect with them and, and advocate on behalf of the industry. We're, yes, and we know, like like we said, um, there was another SPH Analytics was yeah, our was our and and then they merged. Yeah, and so yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people liked SPH yeah. Analytics, and so did we, and that's why we yeah they an, were great had yeah. an ar arrangement with them previously. Yeah, um, but I will say that Prescini has been responsive to the concerns and seems to be. Um, working, working through some of that. Um, but like I said, I am happy to provide a couple of other names as well. I yeah. will tell you that uh, when Gina Throneberry, um, my dear colleague, reached out to all of the vendors, we didn't hear back from yeah. several. Um, there was like a bounce back of an email. So although the CMS website says there are 15, I would argue there are probably only five, probably only a handful um, and I only recognize really like up. three names on right. the list. So yeah, I, I think that we're, and to your point, um, sign up right away. You know, even if you don't implement the thing, you got to get into the, into the, uh, the queue. Get into the queue. Exactly. Yeah. And, and let's point out the other kind of obvious thing. This is going to cost you money. It's not going to be a cheap process. So I will say, um, what I, when we have a monthly call with CMS and I have pushed back with them on that. Um, they don't ask, they don't know how much sure. these vendors um, cost when yeah. they are approving them as a vendor of 
the survey, which I think is problematic. Yeah. Um, I do know that one of the vendors we reached out to, they charged $20,000 for the survey. Obviously, we did not um, go with them as a <laughs> yeah. preferred vendor, and, and we've been steering folks um, elsewhere. Um, but yes, there is a cost attached. Um, you know, it's looking at probably a few thousand dollars, uh, yeah. depending on which mode you, you offer. And that's the other reason that ASCA continues to advocate for an electronic only option, because yeah. we do know that that would cut down on the cost to our facilities and honestly allow you to get, um, more survey results. Cause right yeah. now I think people are going to probably just, try to get the minimum, which is the 200 completed surveys. But if you do electronic and you can just kind of blanket all of your patients with the, with the email, you know, you probably get much higher response rate um, than that. So, yeah. And from a quality improvement standpoint, we rely on the satisfaction data so much for our quality improvement programs. We, in those of us that deal with quality improvement every day, we're very concerned that the results are going to be less useful to us than, a, than something that we've created with five simple questions, right. for example, that really gets you much more valuable. So one of the things that we've been talking about, Kara, is uh, you know maybe you want to keep both systems. Maybe you want to do the minimum for the OAS caps and then uh, keep your other system because you want that data, you want that right. valuable feedback that's really much more relevant to you. So do th I, but the problem with that is, of course, it's twice as much work. So it's more burden. And believe yeah. me, I you know I saw an Ask a Connect this week. People once again were, you know, saying what you just said, and yeah. and we hear you, and we have been, you know, saying the same thing yeah. for almost a decade now to CMS. This survey has been um, in discussion for um, since 2012. Since um, the inpatient hospital. And so, yeah, you know, yeah. we, we've been successful in pushing back and delaying yeah. implementation um, a few times now um, and getting some small tweaks, some modifications. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we understand that it's a new um, burden. It's a new cost. And that, yes, unfortunately, um, it will probably take away from some of the other more beneficial data that mm -hmm. that you were receiving. And that's what I was telling the group. Probably shouldn't put this on record, <laughs> but um, for the first time, you know, ASCA did kind of point blank, point blank state in our comment letter that CMS might be pricing facilities out of participation in the AAC quality reporting program which is, um, you know, really sad because yeah. I think that it could be something and it could be better um, than what it is. Um, but if facilities are not seeing the value, and of course we know that our ASCs, our facilities mm -hmm. are gonna, going to continue to do what they need to do to offer the highest quality yeah. of care and to, you know, get that, you know, high level of patient satisfaction with or without this government mandate. Yeah. Um, and so facilities might say, you know, this is going to cost me $5,000. This new, you know, if I do hips and knees, that new, you know, patient reported um, performance measure um, that's coming down the line, you know, maybe that's going to cost me a significant amount of money. And they're going to just look at it from a business perspective yeah. and say, it's not worth it. You know, might as well get that 2% penalty, which like I said, I'm not endorsing or supporting yeah, no, and, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's problematic, but um, you know, that, that might be something that facilities do just because of this additional cost. And we know that there's costs yeah. you know, coming at us from all, from all sides these and, days. And we're already seeing that, that resistance, even for some of the other measures that are out there. Um, at, you also talked briefly um, during your session about uh, ASC 20. <laughs> my favorite, <laughs> yeah, my favorite I, measure, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it, but we probably better mention it quickly. 
Yeah, so ASC 20 is the COVID-19 um, vaccination measure, and ASCA has um, been on record opposing this measure from, from its inception. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had problems working with the CDC through their um, uh, National Healthcare Safety Network, the NHSN yeah. uh, portal through which you have to submit. Um, they're, they're not really all that responsive over there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just the fact that you have to pick a week per month to report and there's quarters, you know, every quarter CMS pulls the data. There's just a lot going on for this measure, which we don't find um, the value in. Um, The measure is not changing every month or the data that we're receiving is not changing every month. It's not useful. Um, And so we don't know why um, we have to report it. ASCA once again asked for the measure to be removed. We did add a second request in this year's comment letter that if, CMS is, you know, going to keep this measure. They should at least only require it to be reported annually, once per year, as was the case when we had the flu vaccination measure instead of, you know, I mean, if you miss one month out of 12, you lose your 2%, which is ridiculous because the data could be exactly the same as it was the previous month. So, uh, so, uh, and I, I just want to bounce back to talk about OAS caps. This is coming. It's not, you're, you're not going to win the battle to have this pushed off. So people need to understand that yeah. uh, they have to do it. You know, I think we're, we are small, but we are small, but mighty at ASCA and we do a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if the hospitals can't, um, right. you know, can't, can't get rid of some of these things, I think expecting, you know, um, it, it to be removed from the ASCs is probably not likely. So no, we, we anticipate it will be coming. We are still going to advocate for, like I said, some changes, right? Um, it would be great if we could get it to be electronic only at mm-hmm. some point in the near future. I know a lot of the other measures that are under development, uh, with CMS are more electronic or even text. Um, so they're not being done. I mean, who has a landline these days? Who answers their cell phone? If you, if, if I don't know it, who it is, right, yeah. right, yeah, I'm not going to answer. Yeah. And as I said, some of the vendors are only they only do the phone survey. Yeah. Um, and charge more. It's a more expensive. Right, it's a more right. expensive mode. For less likely to to actually get an answer, unless you got an 85 year old woman or, or guy who wants to talk on the phone for five hours. And and my parents, <laughs> I mean, my parents are 76. They just got rid of their landline. Yeah, so, that's true. So you know, that's even true. you know, it's it's less likely yeah. that people have a landline, even Medicare age population. That's a good so. point. As always, Kara, it's great talking to you. Yes. I know you got to rush off here, but thanks for your time. Absolutely, thanks, John. Next, I had an opportunity to speak to Lori Beauclair. Uh, Lori is with Transworld for collections. She does collections. And uh, we just had an interesting conversation about what's going on with collections and and the importance of understanding the law as well as what you should be looking for if you're looking for a collection agency. Let's listen to the interview. I'm at the Ohio State Association meeting in September of 2023, and I'm here with Lori Beauclair. Uh, Lori is with Transworld Systems, and uh, uh, she's one of the vendors that we were, at, at, you know, during these conferences, Lori, you know, a lot of our vendors, we walk around, talk to each other during those breaks, and uh, you and I struck up an interesting conversation about, um, about collections, uh, which is not a topic that is often on the agenda of these state association meetings. And I was thinking, you know, we haven't talked about it in the podcast at all over the years. And I just thought a short conversation about some of the things that, um, you know, people should be considering when looking about collections, even getting, you know, even avoiding collection. Obviously, the best thing to do is to avoid those collections in the first place. But ultimately, there are going to be people that are just not going to pay or you're going to have to take that extra step. So first of all, introduce yourself and your company and, uh, and then we'll take it from there. Okay. Thank you so much. 
Um, Lori Beauclair, I have been a representative for Transworld Systems since 1987. Oh, heavens. And <laughs> which means I have met with many, many healthcare clients yeah. and companies over those years. And um, my, my goal for what I do for a living is to take a negative, which is delinquent accounts, yeah. low paying balances, non paying balances, and turn those into a positive. So there's a more positive cash flow revenue stream back to the practice. Right. And people, I think we're hesitant to send our patients to collection. You know, I, I mean, we're in a human uh, services field and, it, you know, you don't want to admit, you know, that you're, you're sending, a, you know, one of your patients to, to collections. And yet, you know, there are people out there that unfortunately are just not going to pay the bills or will neglect it. I mean, we know that there's also these, uh, you know, older patients who forgot that they had a visit, you know, three months ago because they've had 20 other visits in the meantime. Um, and it takes, you know, a few extra steps. Let's start by talking about how can we even avoid using a collection agency in the first place, you know, what should you be doing up front, you know, that, that can solve this problem before you end up with that, that difficult situation? That's a fair question because of course, most, most practices, because they built their practice on referrals yeah. and um, never want to lose a patient. They right. never want to turn an account over to third party collections because they lose control. Yeah. But a lot has changed over the years um, with the intervention of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau governing what yeah. agencies can and cannot do, but also with softwares that our practices are using. They have become quite sophisticated, giving the practice, for example, a series of uh, letters, uh, scripts, um, payment plans, making it easier to do business with a healthcare client. Right, right. Multiple payments on credit cards that they keep on file. Um, so we're seeing, although with all of those different options available to the patient, we're still seeing a fair amount of accounts, usually approximately 10% mm -hmm. of your entire revenue cycle is going to be slow pay, no pay, mm -hmm. maybe a combination of bankruptcies, uh, finding new addresses. Yeah. And that requires very sophisticated steps to locate accurate information and uh, proceed with adding to your bottom line, increasing dollars back to. Well, and you get a good point there. You know, the, the first step is making sure you got the right information at registration. I often joke about the fact that one of our lowest paid people in the surgery center is often the registration clerk. And yet that person is the gatekeeper for all of financial information. I mean, hopefully you got it beforehand, but this is the person actually physically looking at the card. And if they don't do that, or if they don't get that information updated, you could be really in a serious situation that could lead to, you know, to, to having to go to a collection agency. I'd, I'd like to add a point regarding mm -hmm. that. You're absolutely correct because you need to have within your front desk office people, along mm -hmm. with your billing staff, the right people yeah, on the bus point. in the right seat. And they also all must be in agreement with what they can say, yeah. how they offer different off, uh, options as far as payment options. And um, a lot of times they may want to set up uh, a contest, for example. Yeah. You know, what? How, how many payments can we bring in this week? Yeah. And then 
offer a contest prize. Yeah. So. You just have to be so careful with any of those things you're doing internally. Uh, because when you're when you're the first person collector, of course, you have a lot more options before you turn it over to a third party to do that. But even when you're doing that, you know, there are some states, for example, that, you know, once you set up a payment plan, you're actually into, you know, territory that could be complicated. Like you might actually be considered a bank, uh, you know, if you're uh, if you're if you're offering a payment plan. So just check your state regulations and be very careful about that. Absolutely. So uh, as I was mentioning, a lot of times we are very hesitant to turn things over to collection. We don't want to get the the doctor, you know, who uh, you know brought the cases to us angry. You know, maybe these this is a long term patient that they see in the office a lot and there was only one surgery that was there you know so first of all by the way you should always check with the the uh, the, the surgeon before you turn them over to collection but one of the things that you and I were talking about is that this hesitancy to turn over to collection manifests itself in two ways first of all it, we don't always turn it over to collection and even as you and I are talking about a $25 copay you know you have a hundred of those a year and you just paid you know 25 you just lost $2,500 worth of revenue it doesn't sound like a heck of a lot of money right now but you know that's a pretty substantial a part portion of a person's salary well re- regarding collection agencies times have changed back in yeah. the 60s to the 80s the collection agencies really wanted larger balances yeah, yeah. and Remember, a collection agency can only do up to the amount of work that they're going to provide. They're not going to lose money. Yeah. So if you're using a contingency fee agency, and let's say it's at 35%, they have to figure in the cost of paying their collector. Yeah. Usually the collector is on a flat fee for salary plus a commission, Mm -hmm. number of phone calls made, number of letters, especially with increased postage these days. Yeah. And how, how much time and effort are they going to put into, let's say a $25 balance? Yeah. They really cannot afford to throw a lot of money towards that. Yeah. So you have to look at alternatives to the traditional. Correct. Automation is absolutely crucial and has um, escalated, you know, to work those small balances. And I agree with you, though, if you have $150 accounts, you know, a lot of practices are not turning those balances over. Mm -hmm. However, you may want to look at a flat rate agency or someone who will, um, you know, you know exactly what that agency is going to do on their account. They're going to make yeah. two phone calls. By law, they have to first send a demand, which is a requirement through Regulation F, mm-hmm. and then what the process is. Ask the collection agency what the process is. Most clients don't know what that collection agency is doing. Yeah, And you have a right to know how thoroughly are they going to work that account. What are the steps that they're going to take? Do they meet all the criteria? Right, right. Because you're going to be, it, 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 you have to, you have to double check these companies before you turn it over to them. Because you're ultimately going to be perhaps responsible for, you know, some of that uh, the, the responsibility for at least making sure they're following the rules. And by the way, under I, I'll just go back to the uh, regulations that uh, you know the the conditions for coverage actually state that on an annual basis, all of the contractors that you work with, you have to analyze their contract to make sure they're meeting federal state and local regulations. So I, you and I didn't talk about that before, but that's a requirement from to be to maintain your license and your certification. And that falls not only to, you know, to your, uh, your uh, computer vendor, um, but also and your cleaning company, but also to to your collection agency. So very yeah, good point. Make sure they have a BAA that you sign, right, make sure right. that you get their terms and conditions and everything is outlined in the agreement. 
um, what are the expectations? Yeah. Um, and be careful CF- of that because some yeah. states do not require collection agencies to be licensed. Gotcha. And think about what our product is. Our product is cash flow, which terms, you know, calculates into money. Right, right. And so anytime you have um, a situation where practices are handling money, collection agencies are handling money, you want to make sure that you're getting your statements in a timely manner. Right. That uh, the commissions are accurate, that the balances are being worked. And that you're able to, in real time, get reports from your collection agency and have a better understanding of what they're they're doing for you. Right. And and one thing we're just about to talk about, too, is uh, the importance of turning your your accounts over before they get too old. Uh, You know, sometimes we just wait too long, and then, then there's just really not much value to being able to collect afterwards. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. We, we actually show a graph, which is from the Department of Commerce, um, and accounts depreciate approximately 5% per month. Oh, that's good. So the average age a collection agency receives an account, it used to be eight months. Yeah. Now, with all of our sophisticated software that helps manage those accounts for a practice, after insurance pays... Mm-hmm. That's approximately 45 days old, up to 60 days old. Then the practice sends the first statement out. Yeah. 21 to 30 days later, they send statement number two. So now that account is 90 days and then 120 for the third statement. Yeah. And then their staff, they would like their staff to make the phone calls. They'd like their staff yeah. to send delinquent account letters. I've seen all sorts of things, stickers on yeah. those statements, past due and read, so on and so forth. Be very careful if you do state to a patient that this account could go to collections, then you must follow through and send it to collections if it goes unpaid. Yeah. So you not point. do not want to state an idle threat. So right. educate yourself on on what should be said and how those accounts are going to be worked. To give you an idea of the depreciation, getting back to that Department of Commerce graph, when an account is six months old, that's 180 days, it's 30% collectible. Yeah. So when I hear from clients going, our collection agency is not doing very well. Okay, well, first of all, if you negotiate a low rate, let's say yeah. I'm not going to do business with you unless you're giving me a 25 or 30%, you're kind of cutting your collection agency off at the knees yeah. because – they can't afford to work the account. So that extra maybe 35%, yeah, 40% might, it, might give them the leverage. Yeah, yeah. But but watch your timing. What are you doing on accounts that are four months up to a year old? If you run your aging report and you have more than 20% out past 90 days, you need to rein that in yeah. and use a professional service that will bring those delinquent dollars to you. And lastly, uh, you know, we kind of referred to the CF um PDB uh, regulation. Can you just talk about that for a second? When you're investigating a collection agency, you really need to make sure that they're following these rules. Can you just talk about that for a a bit? Uh, The CFPB stands for Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, It clarifies rules on validation notices, and the CFPB applies to governing collection agencies, 
debt buyers, collection law firms, loan services. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's an agency. It's it's an arm of the United States government that was formed around 2008 when we had the banking the bank crisis. crisis. Yeah. And um, it's responsible for consumer protection in the financial sector. So the CFPB, as it pertains to a third-party collection agency, it governs how often we can speak with a debtor. Mm -hmm. It governs in frequency. There's seven contacts per debtor in a seven-day period that is allowed. Mm -hmm. It also, a major change for us is the first time ever we are allowed to text or email a debtor. Mm -hmm used to only be allowed to make a phone call or send a letter out. Yeah. So, so that, recognizing technology now. Yeah. So if you think about that, we now have to also make sure our clients are inputting that data to yeah. us. Yeah. So that you have that information before they go, you go out to them. Correct. Yeah. That's a good Correct. point. So the CFPB, um, I know with the company that I represent, Transworld Systems, we have 65 compliance officers. Yeah. That's all they do full time is to make sure that our licensing yeah. is up to date, that we are follow our collectors are following all of the CFPB debt collection rules. Um, Regulation F has dictated also uh, back in November of 2021 that we must use the federal first demand. And so this first collection letter has a consumer box on the front of the first letter and where a consumer can actually dispute it or request validation of debt. Mm-hmm. Of course, when this was first instituted, we were thinking, well, everybody's going to dispute. That's not true. What we yeah. have, we have tracked this very carefully. And what we're finding are, are that consumers are taking it more seriously that, oh, this is a legitimate debt. Yeah, yeah. The CFPB is involved, and so, and if they do request validation of debt, I wouldn't want to make this point. If someone says, "I don't think I owe this," send me proof. By law, we must answer that request within thirty days, mm-hmm. or the account is canceled out. Got it. So you have to go back to the uh, uh, the, the client, the surgery center, in this case, uh, to make sure that that information is available and can be sent to the patient within thirty days. Correct. Very good. Thank you so much, Lori. This has been great. It's a topic that's not talked about a lot. You know, we don't talk about this nationally, and I think you really shed a lot of light on on, a, on an area that every surgery center's got to deal with. And, and one big takeaway I want everybody to remember is that you're always going to have to deal with these problems. Every surgery center is going to have somebody that's not going to pay. So best to, uh, you know, plan beforehand and make sure you turn that over to collection as quickly as you can. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And lastly, I had an opportunity to speak to Sarah Paul. She is the chair of the Ohio State Association Board, and we spoke briefly about the legislative efforts of the State Association over the past year. I'm here at the 2023 annual uh, Ohio Association meeting with uh, Sarah Paul. She's the chair of the uh, Board of Directors uh, for the association. This is your second year, if I remember right, yes, correct? Yes, second year yeah. as chair. So, and so thank you so much for joining us here with this special episode. Uh, we already talked to uh, Heidi Moss about the membership and about the, you know, the value of that. Can you just start by talking about you as a, as a running a surgery center, you know, how important it is to support an associate state association? I found it, it's very important to me and to my staff to support the association. You learn all those little nuances that are coming mm-hmm. up, 
the networking that you can get, yeah. you know, something comes up and, and you go, okay, who, who can I call? And yeah. you know, just right before the conference, I had a, um, up here at another center call me and go, this is going on. What, where do I go? And I'm yeah. like, okay, I know we can call this person yeah. and I'll get you her number. And, and it was through the association that I met that resource. And so right. it is, there's just so many resources that, that we can provide to the ASCs, especially if you're not part of a health system. Yeah. A management you know, company or a right, hospital. If you're not a yeah. management company. Yeah. And even if you are a management company, yeah. if they don't have a big presence in Ohio, they don't have those local right. resources that are so valuable. Yeah. And you bring up a, such an important point that I've been in the business, was it 33 years, 33 years now. And, you know, right from day one in 1990, I called out to other administrators in the state and we just shared information at, at free. You know what I mean? Is that they're, yeah, you pay for a membership, but just that, that ability to call a friend Yes. about everything. You're never alone in this industry. So uh, state membership in your state association is an absolute must as far as I'm concerned. And I love ASCA. It's extremely important to support the national organization also, but because, you know, everything is local when, even when it comes to healthcare, it's important to, uh, you know, to, to make sure you're part of uh, an organization like Ohio Association here. So let's, um, you know, a lot going on in the state right now. Um, you know, not as bad as some years, obviously, uh, right. but let's talk a little bit about the legislative uh, things that are going on in Ohio. So a few things going on. They did pass, as a lot of the states have, the surgical smoke evacuation. That um, goes into effect October of 2024. So you got a little um, bit of time. But, got a, yeah. yeah, you got a year to figure out what what yeah. product you're going to use and what you're how you're going to evacuate that smoke but but it is important we have it in new york too it's obviously in a lot of other states i've been working with aorn actually the uh been part of that aorn process too um you know to get this throughout all the different states but uh just like uh you know oas caps for example um it better sooner than later to get this in because it could involve some changes to your uh environment of care too yes absolutely we We've had it in my center for at least a year, maybe two. Yeah. We saw it coming, and it's like, okay, let's get ahead of the curve. And plus, it's just better for the nurses and the, the staff back in the OR. Right. And we did get pushback from some of the doctors. You know, I don't like this. It doesn't. It, yeah. it affects my my feel or with the the bovier. So yeah. um, it, it takes some some time, and definitely. Um, get on it sooner rather than later so you can figure out what you, what works for you yeah. and for your center and your physicians. Right. Experiment with the systems, get to right. know them, you know, test yes. out different vendors on this. Very important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a, a, a bill moving through and the association has a, a lobbying group that we mm -hmm. um, work with and they do a great job keeping us informed of everything that's going on down at the state house. And they give us a quarterly a quarterly update at our board meetings. Mm -hmm. But if anything comes up in between, they shoot us an email, great relationships with the legislators. Um, they're always setting up meetings for us. If there's something that we need to mm -hmm. talk to them about that will affect us. So they're very, very good to have on our side and, and have that communication and, and intelligence really coming back to us as to what's in the works or might yeah. be in the works or what they're thinking about. So there's a, a bill that hasn't doesn't have any movement on it right now, but it would look to um, provide some exemptions for prior authorizations. 
which is kind of an interesting yeah. thought process. I don't know how they're going to get the insurance companies to sign on to that, but yeah. that's where they're at. Also seems to be going backwards from what, you know, we've been traditionally yes. expecting in the industry. Right. So. right. And then as with happening across the country, there's some gender services mm-hmm. um, for minors uh, action bills in, in place and, yeah, which is more important here in, in Central Ohio than one would think, but there are a yeah. fair number of programs for that. Yeah, it's always interesting in Ohio because you have a lot of uh, you know large metropolitan areas, and then the rest of the state is very rural, which is, by the way, what New York is like, too. Uh, people forget that there's other, something other than New York City, just like here, there's something other than Cleveland. Right. Um, but yeah, a very good point is that it, it tends to be more in those, uh, those uh, high-density urban areas. Kind of going back to one thing you said about the state association being so helpful. I think a lot of ASCs will say, oh, I only need to go to the conference during survey year. Yeah. But there is so much else that that Medicare and, and, you know, CMS and your joint commission and AAA and all those, Mm -hmm. there are regulations that come out all through those three years in between your surveys. And then, if you don't catch those when they're being implemented, you don't know about them. Right. And showing up survey years is not going to provide all that for you. You're going to be under the gun to try and get those in place. And I found going to the, the offerings that we provide for education has been really beneficial in keeping us up to date, current, and not having to scramble to implement things. At the right last before. minute. And to that end, one of the things that makes you unique in Ohio, not, not necessarily unique, there are other states that do this, is your infection control program. You want to talk about that for a second and how important that is to to the, your uh, your members? Yes, we uh, at our annual conference, we offer a full day of infection control education. It provides all eight um, hours of, of CEU credit that is needed or required by CMS for the infection preventionist. And, I wish um, you point out that's a state rule. It's not CMS. Yeah, state it's rule. actually Sorry. state rule. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, misspoke yeah. there, but a state rule. So you, they can get their full eight-hour credit in one mm-hmm. place, and um, it's very helpful. It also connects them to other infection control infection people. control people. Yeah. Yeah. So our, all our of our yeah all of our centers that are in, in uh, Ohio they they attend that conference uh, for that very reason. Even though even though we as a company by the way provide that mm-hmm. infection control training, it doesn't meet the Ohio specific regulations. So it's important that you get that yeah. the people out there. So very good point. And the the conference also we provide that um, credit of legal CEU that that nursing need for their annual. Gotcha. So, Sarah, I guess the good news is that it hasn't been, you know, one of those years where you got a lot of, uh, of regulations, you know, potential regulations or legal uh, issues that could really um, hurt the industry. So I, I guess that's a win right now. Um, but, you know, thank you on, uh, you know, behalf of all the centers here for the hard work that you do on the board and uh, trying to, you know, keep advocating for, the, for all the centers in the state and, and dealing with the legislative stuff. It's, it's, you do a great job here in Ohio. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me, and we appreciate you coming to our conference every year. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this special episode of the o, of the ASC podcast with John Gailey from the Ohio State Association meeting in September 2023. We hope you enjoyed the content, and we hope you also listen to our other episodes of the ASC podcast with John Gailey. This episode of the ASC podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. 
Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.